Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Avi Cooper. I'm once again joined by Tony Brew and Hannah Abrams. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. So before we get to the show, is there anything interesting that either of you have seen recently that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, I totally have one. So as the audience is about to find out, today's episode is intern question themed. And the idea is just basically to look into all of the weird questions that come up as an intern. Um, and so I was chatting with one of my co-residents, Emily Moyne, about sort of questions that had come up during her intern year, things that had been unresolved mysteries of her intern year in internal medicine. And she was like, yeah, one thing that I just never could figure out, why does the hospital mouthwash say not for use in patients with cystic fibrosis or patients on mechanical ventilators? Um so this was an interesting, like, pre-intern question for the intern question episode. And the answer turns out, so we have alcohol-free mouthwash in the hospital, and there have been episodes of Burkholderia outbreaks where the Burkholderia was actually growing inside these alcohol-free mouthwashes. Um, and so this was the last outbreak was in a, a group of mechanically ventilated patients, but for that reason, we don't use it in patients who are at risk for Burkholderia infection. That's so cool. And I definitely did not know that. I know. And I now have mixed feelings about the hospital mouthwash. <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed that like Emily read the fine print on <laughs> on, on the hospital mouthwash. Like I, I would not have yeah, done that. But Burkholderia is really right scary. There. It is, but it is, oh, yeah. but it's really scary in CF patients. So I think it's it's a good thing that they don't let CF patients use that if that's even remotely a risk. So yeah, and it's like cinnamon burst flavor. It's that'll be that's the not, other. That, that's not quite as yeah right. That's not quite as scary as uh, Perkledaria. <laughs> but. Fair, fair. So um, well, so as Hannah had mentioned, today's show is going to have a slightly different format from our usual episodes. Hannah's going to walk us through a question that came up for her during the first part of her intern year. So Hannah, why don't you tell us more about what we're going to discuss tonight? Yeah, absolutely. I am currently a quarter of the way through my intern year, which is just totally wild to me. Um, and usually when I'm looking into a question for a tutorial or for the show, I really want to have a very clear answer. Like, Tony, I think you you average like 70 references per tutorial. Um, I really usually want to have like solid answer before we share it on the show. In this case, I'm going to share some really shorter sort of pearls or questions that I've had that I've looked into that don't necessarily always have answers, but kind of show some of the dead ends and curiosity questions that I've looked up during intern year. So what are we going to do for uh, today's episode? So today is why does acetaminophen cause an anion gap metabolic acidosis? Uh, and so then why that specific question? Yeah, so um, this question came up while I was in the MICU, and I was sort of trying to think through the differential diagnosis of a patient who had developed an anion gap metabolic acidosis while in the hospital. And usually when I think through sort of a first-round differential diagnosis for anion gap metabolic acidosis in a patient who's pretty sick, has been in the hospital for a while, and has developed it while here, I think about basically lactate, uremia, ketosis, um, and then I think about, is this a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis or a normal anion gap metabolic acidosis with a ton of NS, and then we're overcorrecting a gap or something like that. And looking into this, so I sort of had a patient that didn't meet any of those criteria, and looking into this made me add acetaminophen exposure to the list. So, so for 
this patient, it wasn't just that they had like liver failure or hepatic necrosis and just had an elevated lactate level, like that the lactate was normal? No, the lactate, I think it was like 0.7 or something. Um, and so totally, that is one cause of anti-gap acidosis in the setting of um, hepatic necrosis secondary to acetaminophen toxicity. The sort of interesting thing about this is that this is more of a subacute to chronic exposure. So I'll start from the beginning. The gamma glutamyl cycle. <laughs> <laughs> which is undoubtedly known and beloved to all of us just sort of by heart. I I um I have it uh, right next to my mirror, right next to the Krebs cycle so that I can look at it every morning and have it inspire me. But I'll sort of briefly, briefly run through um, some of the basics. So basically, in the liver normally, we have this cycle called the gamma-glutamyl cycle that generates glutathione. Glutathione is a tripeptide. It has cysteine, glycine, and glutamate, and it has a lot of key biochemical functions, which is probably why we've sort of heard of it, why it rings a bell. And the one that we're going to focus on here is conjugation. So to take another step back, usually when we think about drug metabolism, so any xenobiotic or drug that comes into our bodies can either undergo phase one or phase two metabolism. Phase one reactions are oxidation, reduction, and hydrolysis, which is usually like cytochrome P450 most commonly. And they often act on an existing side group on the drug and make that polar, right? So the idea is to make the drug polar so that it can be excreted by the kidney. So for many, many drugs that actually makes phase one metabolism actually makes the drug either an active form or a toxic metabolite. Phase two reactions like glucuronidation, they conjugate drugs. So they basically, in order to make them polar, they just like stick a big ex group on them, an endogenous group on them. So for example, glucuronidation, that makes them more excretable by the kidney. So glutathione is something that we can sort of stick onto things to make them polar. Normally, when we have a little bit of, of Tylenol or acetaminophen, most of it goes straight to glucuronidation and only 10% or so is metabolized by phase one metabolism by cytochrome P450. The So I said that phase one metabolism can generate a toxic metabolite. And in this case, that happens. So phase one metabolism of acetaminophen generates NAQPI, which is a highly reactive metabolite that has the potential to bind to several hepatic proteins and therefore kind of cause hepatic necrosis. So we have to neutralize it by conjugating it to glutathione. If we take too much acetaminophen, we run out of our glutathione. And that's what we classically think about as the pathophysiology of acute acetaminophen overdose. The normal glucuronidation pathway is overwhelmed, so we have to generate so we generate more NAQPI and we have to use up more glutathione. So where does the the anion gap come in here then? Yeah, okay. So, the gamma glutamyl cycle we have to regenerate glutathione somehow, especially in the setting of a subacute to chronic acetaminophen exposure, so over time. So um, there is actually, it turns out, some controversy over the exact uh, gamma-glutamyl cycle. So I have two copies, obviously, next to my mirror. <laughs> um, just one with sort of the revised version from the 2012 paper, um, and then one with the classical one. Um, <laughs> I'm completely kidding, just to clarify. <laughs> But anyway, so there's a little bit of controversy about the exact cycle, but the thing to know is that chronic activation of this pathway, either upstream or downstream of glutathione generation, 
causes an increase in 5-oxoproline levels. So 5-oxoproline is probably most famous as the O of the Goldmark mnemonic for anti-gap metabolic acidosis. Um, and then also sort of notable is the P of mud piles is paracetamol, which is another name for acetaminophen. So we kind of talked about acute acetaminophen overdose causes metabolic acidosis via hepatic necrosis and then a lactic acidosis, subacute or chronic high-dose acetaminophen. So for example, one of the case reports was a patient who had been on one gram of acetaminophen Q6 hours postoperatively for orthopedic surgery, and then had had a subsequent prolonged hospitalization and had stayed on that standing dose, had a total Tylenol exposure or a total acetaminophen exposure over hospitalization of, I think, 60 grams. 60? 60, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and subsequently developed a 5-oxaproline anti-gap metabolic acidosis. So Hannah, so, you said that this is um, typically um, a more subacute um, uh, toxicity. So can you say again for that particular patient, over what period of time did they get the 60 grams? Oh gosh, so now I'm going like, to have to add. So speaking. for, yeah, I, um, I think she... So the the case report was 60 grams, but I think it was over 21 days of hospitalization. Okay. So maybe didn't get exactly dosed. Uh, hopefully they didn't wake that patient over overnight or something. And okay, uh, but this is this doses. is you know not the acute ingestion that's going to lead to liver failure. This is more of a chronic, absolutely you know high yeah. dose ingestion of <laughs> 60 grams in this case. Okay, that 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 helps a yeah, lot. Yeah, totally. And the other thing is, it's actually pretty inconsistent what sort of like cumulative dose or what dose even um, over time causes this causes this reaction. We have very limited data. Almost everything is really from case reports and case right. series. And there have been some case reports and case series in patients. Um, so for example, one patient had gotten 650 milligrams daily, and that was enough over the course of three weeks in a patient who was severely malnourished to cause a pretty significant um, 5-oxaproline anti-agap metabolic acidosis. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that really does drive home that the importance of the malnutrition piece of that, meaning like if you don't have a lot of glutathione stores, it does, it'll take less time, less acetaminophen, I should say, to potentially induce toxicities and, and things like this. Um, and so I think a lot of patients that are in the hospital and are getting acetaminophen, acetaminophen like for days and days and days, a lot of them are often malnourished and, and, and are at higher risk for something like this. Absolutely. Which kind of, so the very interesting thing about this is we have such limited data about it. So it's not common um, and it's not something that we often look for. So we don't quite know exactly how prevalent it is. But the other question is, what is the clinical significance of this? Sure. Right. Both as sort of a prognostic indicator, if you've been in the hospital for three weeks and you've gotten a total cumulative dose of 60 grams of, of acetaminophen, what <laughs> What else is going on that has kept you in the hospital for three weeks? Um, and the the basic answer to the question of what is the clinical significance and what is the prognostic indication of it is pretty sort of we just like don't really have great data um, about what exactly it means. So it's something that we'll look for and it might sort of cause me to stop hunting for another cause of a metabolic acidosis. But it doesn't necessarily help me change too much management, other than maybe reduce the patient's standing Tylenol dose or make it PRN. Well, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think if it prompts you to re-examine 
the med list because mm-hmm. sometimes stuff just gets kind of tucked in there and you just don't notice <laughs> that that, a, that something's been kind of just ordered in a standing way for longer than it should have. So mm-hmm. I think that's, I think this is a really helpful kind of cue for that. It ideally wouldn't get to that point that they develop a metabolic acidosis, but I think that's, I think it's a good reminder. One of the interesting things about this phenomenon is I spent uh, probably 12 or more years using mud piles and um, it's uh, 5-oxaproline that is one of the reasons why um, I, I now consistently see people talk uh, gold mark and not mud piles when they talk about metabolic uh, anion get metabolic acidosis. Um, I, two years ago, I, I don't know that I had heard of gold mark, um, but I think, I think this you, phenomenon is one of the yeah. reasons. I had totally really never considered this until I looked, I was sort of looking into this specific patient's metabolic acidosis. Yeah. Ended up deciding that we were overcorrecting the anion gap for for the albumin and that it was actually just that the patient had gotten a ton of normal saline. That was my end conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) But you learned a lot. Yeah. (laughs) But I learned so much. And so did we. (laughs) So I would say that my take-home points from all of this, one, relook at the med list. Does the patient need to be on sort of standing, um, standing acetaminophen? Two, In patients who have a new anion gap metabolic acidosis that developed during the hospital, think about 5-oxaproline metabolic acidosis. And then lastly, just sort of helping me review uh, the beloved gamma glutamyl cycle and understand sort of this pathophysiology of glutathione that, you know, we always think about this acute depletion in the setting of an acute toxicity, but that also chronic glutathione uh, depletion over time over the course of several weeks does have an impact. And beware of Burkholderia in your non-alcohol containing mouthwash. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Especially if it's uh, cinnamon. I don't know what that flavor was, but it sounded cinnamon. Cinnamon burst. Yeah. Well, Hannah, that that was actually uh, absolutely fantastic. And I learned a ton about the cycle that I'd probably put way in the back of my mind, the the gamma uh, glutamyl cycle. Uh, So thank you for bringing that up again. Um, And that wraps up uh, this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Uh, Thanks again for joining us. And if you have an interesting tutorial or online meta teaching point that you think we should feature on the show, just tag us on Twitter. Uh, Until next time, I'm Tony Brew. I'm Hannah Abrams. And I'm Avi Cooper. You can also join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have the show notes for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, please visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash Curious Clinicians for more information. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye. Bye. Bye.